0: Um, welcome, everybody. I'm Suri Rudolph Sugarman, um, and I want to welcome you both on behalf of the Rudolph family. Um, this lecture, as you know, is sponsored in memory of my father, Stanley Rudolph Shmuel Ben Raphael. Um, and I want to welcome you in my capacity as president of Drisha. It's wonderful to see you all here today. Um, just in terms of the schedule, this, this year will take about an hour. We'll dive in Mariv about seven, and finish hopefully by ten after seven, and go straight to Breaking the Fast. Um, I first met Diana Ginsburg here at Drisha on Tisha B'Av and um, she gave a shear that I attended and I it was really excellent, I enjoyed it very much, and so I asked her if she could speak for us today, and it seems that she's developed a sub-specialty of speaking on fast days, so <laughs> not everybody can do that. Uh, so we're very happy to have her. Um, Diana uh, is a graduate of Columbia University, and after graduating college, she made Aliyah uh, and did her master's degree at Hebrew University in education. She's worked for the Jewish Agency for an organization called uh, Yavne Olami, um, she was the executive director of Bemagley Tzedek, um, which is a social justice slash Jewish action organization in Israel. Um, and she's, she's one of the founders of a really fascinating group called Siach Conversation, an environment and social justice conversation, which had a wonderful conference at the Isabella Friedman Center. Um, and this year she's here in New York as director of Jewish service learning at the Jewish Agency. Um, So I was not only delighted that Diana can speak for for us today but that her topic has to do with Erev Yom Kippur and, and Midrashim about Erev Yom Kippur because Erev Yom Kippur in my home was always a very special day. It was a day when the records of the Chazanesha Kol Nidre would be playing. And in particular, there was one that always moved me greatly. It was recorded behind the Iron Curtain. And it was a Kol Nidre that was recorded in the Soviet Union at a time when Jews were not allowed to openly practice their religion. My mother still has the record. Um, Not too many people have record players to play these records, but she does. Um, and that particular recording and the the, uh, the, the chazan there recording the yeshiva Shalmala and I'm picturing everybody in some basement, you know, where nobody can see them and know what they're doing. It's really, really powerful. Um, and of course, the bracha that fathers give their children on their Arab Yom Kippur is very special and very moving. So we're delighted with the topic you've chosen, and we're very pleased to welcome you. Thank you.
1: First of all, I want to thank Suri so much for inviting me and also to the entire Rudolph family. I hope that this Shi'or is a fitting tribute to your husband, to your father, to your grandfather. Um, And thank you to the Drisha family that, as Suri mentioned, has invited me once more to share the final hours of a fast day with you today. What we're going to do is look at two narratives, two stories that appear in the Talmud Bavli that are within the frame of Erev Yom Kippur. These are but two stories out of no less than 14 that are framed within this general sense of stories that happen on Erev Yom Kippur, stories that seem to detail disparate events and yet appear under this general frame the two stories that we are going to look at together this evening are stories that are rich deep and multifaceted. and each one in isolation has many different interpretations perhaps even conflicting interpretations and what we're going to do together is with each one look at each one in isolation, peel away at least two layers, and then we're going to look at them together and look at the areas of overlap and see if perhaps we can distill and extrapolate some larger messages by looking at the two stories together. But what I first want to do is a brief digression to try and get us into this general sense of what this means, Erev kipper. And what I'd like to do is look at a source, a Mishnah that is pretty well known from Masechet Yuma, from tractate Yuma. And what we're gonna do is actually, in all of these sources, we'll read the English while referring back to the Hebrew and Aramaic just to make sure that we're on uh, an equal playing field. So we'll start with the first source that appears here in your source booklet, the Mishnah and Yuma. One who says, I shall sin and repent, sin and repent, will have no chance to do repentance. One who says, I will sin and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, will atone, the Day of Atonement does not atone. For transgressions done between a person and the omnipresent God, the Day of Atonement atones. For transgressions between one person and another, the Day of Atonement atones. Only if man appeases the other, if first, the first one here translated here as the first one appeases the other. This is as Rabbi Elazar Arach says, ben Elazar Ben-arach says, "For all your sins shall you be clean before the Lord. For transgressions between a man and the Amna, between a person and the omnipresent does the day of atonement atone. For transgressions between one person and another, the day of atonement atones, only if the first one appeases the other. What we have here is a very clear indication that when it comes to interpersonal relations, when it comes to transgressions between humanity, Yom Kippur is only effective if prior work is done before the fast day itself. And what is that prior work? If individuals appease one another, if there is work of reconciliation that is done before the fast itself taking this Mishnah that appears in Masechet Yuma and codifying it into normative halacha, what we see in the Shulchan Aruch as well as in the Mishnah Bruah that I've brought here is that there is this sense that we need to capitalize upon the day before Yom Kippur, the moment before Yom Kippur to do the final work of reconciliation that we may not have done previously. If we look at Mishnaburu, the Mishnah Brewer that's cited here in the second source, the one is required to appease his fellow man who sinned against him all year round. If he doesn't have the opportunity, he puts off appeasing him for another day. On of Yom Kippur, he is obligated to fix everything so that he will be purified for all of his sins on Yom Kippur, as it says. Um, on this day, you shall have all of your sins atoned. And so what we have here is taking the Mishnah, which does not mention Erev Yom Kippur as a specific day that is set aside for reconciliation, and then bringing that into normative halacha, saying that that day is set aside as your final opportunity to mend interpersonal relations that may have gone awry right before we enter into Yom Kippur, because if we have not capitalize upon that opportunity on Erev Yom Kippur itself, then we have no chance of achieving atonement for those sins on Yom Kippur itself. Many have tried to look at the 14 different stories that appear in the Talmud Bavli within the frame of stories that happen on Erev Yom Kippur as stories of reconciliation looking at this final day before Yom Kippur to try and mend relationships between human beings. This is the frame that we will also enter into, but as you will see, the stories that are told are far more complex than first meets the eye. And it's not simply about mere reconciliation, but about some messages that are far deeper than that. So what I wanna do is go to the next source. And like I said, we're going to be spending some time peeling layer after layer of this story and i have no doubt that as we finish our hour together you will discover that even after we have peeled various layers off of these two stories we will still be unsatisfied that we have a full picture of what is going on because these stories as i said are rich and multifaceted what we're going to look at now is a story that appears in masecha Kidushin and tractate kiddushin and it appears as part of a larger discussion about laws governing Yichud, when and under what circumstances men and women can be alone together under private, in, in private quarters. This story is immediately preceded by and succeeded by a variety of other stories in which Satan, Satan appears in disguise Um, generally in the disguise of a woman in an attempt to tempt the rabbis um, to succumb to sexual temptation immediately before this story we have two stories one about rabbi akiva and one about rabbi Meir, in which the satan disguises himself as a woman tempts them Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir go halfway, one halfway across a rope and one halfway up a palm tree in order to come to this woman. And it is only because Satan appears to have mercy on them because of their stature and reputation as teachers of Torah that he let them go and reveals himself. And that is the two stories that appear immediately prior to this story. What I'll do right now is read it and just straight through and then we'll go back look uh, a couple layers into it. plimo used to say every day, an arrow in Satan's eye, Gera be'enei de Satan. One day, it was the eve of the day of atonement. Satan disguised himself as a poor man and went and called out at Plimo's door. So bread was taken out to him. On such a day, Satan disguised as a poor person pleaded, when everyone is inside, shall I be outside? Thereupon he was taken in and bread was offered him. On such a day, he urged, when everyone sits at the table, shall I sit alone? He was led and sat down at the table. As he sat, his body was covered with superating sores, and he was behaving repulsively. Sit properly, Plimo rebuked him. Said he, Give me a glass. And one was given to him. He coughed and spat his phlegm into it. They scolded him, whereupon he swooned and feigned death. Then they, the household, heard people crying out, Plimo has killed a man. Plimo has killed a man. Fleeing, He hid in a privy, in a bathroom. Satan followed him, and Plimo fell before him. Seeing how Plimo was suffering, Satan disclosed his identity and said to him, Why have you always spoken thus? How else am I supposed to speak? Responds Plimo. You should say, The Merciful One rebuke Satan. On one level, what we have here is a story about Plimo, one of the late Tanaim, who doesn't appear in any of the Mishnayot, but does appear in the Tosefta and in a bunch of breitot uh, that are quoted in, in the Talmud. We have a story about Plimo, who appears to start off from a posture of boasting, of arrogance. Geira be'ene de satan, an arrow in the eye, of Satan if we look at this particular sort of statement we might think at first blush that what we have here perhaps is an incantation to ward off the Satan um, but if we look at some of the other contexts in which this is used in fact earlier in Masechet Kizushin we see a, a story in which Rav Chista, and keep in mind that we are going to be talking about Rav Chista in the next source in which Rav explains that the reason why he has achieved so much and has achieved superior intellectual properties above and beyond that of his colleagues is because he got married at the age of 16 and was able to free up his own mind for study. And then Rav goes on to explain that had he gotten married at the age of 14, then he too, then he... Uh, negate the two. He would have been able to say an arrow in Satan's eye. And so what we have is another story that appears earlier in Masecha in a sexual context similar to the surrounding stories that take place here, in which Rav Chistus says, if I had gotten married even younger, I would have been able to say an arrow in Satan's eye. I would have been immune from temptation. I would have been immune from the evil inclination. And commenting on that phrasing in that story of Rav Chissa, Rashi basically says that what we have here is a taunt. A taunt um, to Satan saying, I am beyond you. I am untouchable. I am immune from your powers. So what we have here is on one level, a story that starts off with Plimo taunting Satan or boasting from a position of arrogance, believing that he is untouchable, immune. He will not be harmed by sin or by evil inclination. And then what we have here is a story in which Satan gets his foot in the door and then comes in closer and closer and closer, and finally displaces Plimo from his own home. And you have a story where Plimo discovers his own fallibility, And at the end, there is a sense of humility in which he is told, it is not your position to taunt Satan, but rather that is within the purview of God. Um, the merciful one shall rebuke Satan. Not an arrow in Satan's eye, but the merciful one shall rebuke Satan. And so what we have here on one layer is a story of arrogance followed by an experience or an experiment or an exercise in fallibility. And then some ultimate sense of humility, putting Plimo in his place that even Plimo, um, was not able to withstand whatever test happened here. That's on one layer. But when we take it a couple steps further, we're trying to figure out what is this test? What is happening here um, really and why is it that that Plimo disguises himself as a poor person? Before I take a jab at that, I'd like to open that Uh, Satan, thank you, disguises himself as a poor person. Before I take a stab at that, I'd like to open up the floor and get both responses to this text and also a sense of what is going on in terms of disguising himself as a poor person and what is happening here in terms of this text. Plimo does appear in other places. Um, he appears in uh, several other places. We don't know so much more about him um, that, that is relevant in terms of this particular story. OK, So one, one way of reading. this is just a simple test. Um, perhaps this was an Achilles' heel of Plimo, and Satan identified this as a weak point. Or perhaps this is just to show that here is some sort of test. Can he withstand this test of opening up his home, no matter how repulsive this individual is? Yes.: I feel like it's the opposite it
2: seems like this is, um, the norm.
1: Okay, so two points being made here. Um, one point is, maybe this isn't an Achilles heel or a weak point. Perhaps this is a strong point of Plimo. Plimo was known for his hachnesad archim, and that's specifically why um, Satan tests him in this regard, because he is bringing his strongest point and even showing a flaw there. The second point that you made it has to do with Plimo's response and what you are offering is saying perhaps Plimo's failure here was not that he wasn't proactive or kind enough to this person, but that he didn't set the proper boundaries in terms of his own family life. Yeah? What what you are doing is putting this in the context or re-putting it in the context in which it appears, um, saying that this isn't a story that was connected or put in because of the similarities of, of Satan disguising himself or because of the similarities of some type of test and scoffing and the response to that, but that this is within a sexual context also. Um, yes. Yes, meaning that this, that this was within a sexual context and the story can be read within a sexual context and it's not a story that is dealing solely with poor people. And, and that is perhaps one way of reading it. And in particular, if you look at the phrase of an arrow in Satan's eye and what that means and what that means in the Rav Chispa context. Any other comments or responses? Yeah. So what you have here is some sort of blurring of the lines um, between what is expected. Plimo, according to the reading that you said, was not sympathetic enough, um, not in tune enough with the needs of the individual who was in front of him in order to anticipate the individual's needs. Always one step behind, always reactive as opposed to proactive. And you have the surprising portrayal of Satan here, which is in line with the two previous stories um, that appear right before, in which Satan has some sort of sympathetic side, perhaps, um, in which he understands the suffering of the individual. And so you have some sort of blurring of lines between evil and good in terms of prototypes. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, Here, too, what we have is an assumption that Plimo is coming from a point of strength, that he is a bav that he is someone who is known as opening his door. And so there's a question as to whether Satan is taking advantage of that and how Satan is taking advantage of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you have Satan echoing that twice, right? He says, "On such a day, um, is the whole world inside and Am I outside?" And then once he's brought inside, "On such a day, is everyone at the table and I'm seated at the side by myself?" And so you have a repetition twice of the concept of "On such a day" after the original frame of "It is on Yom Kippur." Any other comments? Yeah.
3: Okay.
1: Um so what we have here is looking at this question of what happened, Plimo killed a man. Plimo killed a man, which we know here is that it's not true, that he feigned death. And yet what you say is that whether Plimo's intentions were good or not, ultimately, um, according to this reading, ultimately what's important is what happens on the ground. And there was someone who died under his watch. Um, what's interesting here is, given the fact that this is Erbium Yom Kippur, and we have sort of the concept of "stakasat at that charity saves one from death, What we have here is that Plimo's actions seem to have brought about the exact opposite of what charity is supposed to do. Um, But pointing out that concept of Plimo killed a man and how that plays into the story is definitely an important function in this tale. Yes.
4: Hmm. And we should be, that's why in the end he says, you know, you shouldn't have said what you said. You should have told uh, the rest merciful one for abuse, right? Not the punishment hmm. one. I don't know otherwise what that line means. Um, as he sat, his body was covered with swords. It seems like that happened to him while he was at the
1: table. That's an interesting read in terms of, uh, just to recap, um, that here is a fulfillment of the punishment to Satan. Um I, I mean, that's an interesting reread. I think, in terms of the source, it is uh, a designation of what the person looks like and not a process that is happening uh, during the course of, uh, of sitting there. But I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. um and what you have here if i understand correctly in terms of what you're saying is that there is both blame on both sides there's Primo who is saying something negative on a day-to-day basis but there's also satan who comes in and is looking for the negative side So there's some sort of quid pro quo going on in terms of Satan responding to Plimo. And you're questioning whether Plimo was correct um, in doing that and whether this story is meant to undermine Plimo's uh, original course of behavior. I think we'll take one more comment, but then we are going to move on.
3: In this story, the death is a result of his charity, which logically means that that's not a charity. The behavior of that man is not really something wrong with
1: okay um so either we question the the notion of charity or ask the question of whose death what does that mean charity saves from death Uh, we have death of the satan in this case what does charity save from death really mean i think from the various comments that we have heard um, as we will see as we move on to the next story there's no one way to read the story it is not clear whether Plimo um, withstood the test or didn't withstand the test. It is not clear what the test is. It is not clear whether Plimo's starting point was of a man who was charitable and it was specifically because he was charitable that he was tested in this way or whether Plimo was an individual who did not excel in this particular realm and that's why he was tested in this way i think there are different ways to read this story some more convincing than others but there is a lot of ambiguity surrounding the tale and we're going to come back to it in comparison to the second and try and reach some sort of clarity but when read in isolation what we have here is a story where you can read it in one particular way but there are compelling alternative narratives that can also be made. What I want to look at is now the second story and then look at the two of them together and perhaps reach some sort of larger picture regarding the two. What we have in terms of the second story is something from which is taken out of a larger discussion regarding forbidden and permissible food. Um, and we are told that there is a disagreement between two areas um, within Babel, within Babylonia, two Talmudic centers between Surah and Pompadita regarding eating an udder and whether that is considered basar Bechalav, milk and meat together. Um, and so we're going to read this story, read it through straight, and then go back and here to try and... Peel a couple layers um, from, from the narrative. In Surah, people did not eat the udder. In Pumpadita, they used to eat it. Rami Bartamri, also known as Rami Bardukule of Pumpadita, once happened to be in Surah on the eve of the Day of Atonement. When the townspeople took, away, took all the udders and threw them away, he immediately went and collected them and ate them. He was then brought before Rav Chista, who said to him, Why did you do it? He replied, I come from the place of Rav do who permits it to be eaten. Said Rav Chista to him, but do you not accept the rule when a person arrives in a town, he must adopt the restrictions of the town he has left and also the restrictions of the town he has entered? He replied, I ate them outside of the city's boundary. And with what did you roast them, he replied, with what did you roast them? He replied, with kernels of grapes. Perhaps they were the kernels of wine used for idolatrous purposes. He replied, they had been lying there for more than 12 months. Perhaps they were stolen goods? He replied, the owners must have certainly abandoned all rights to them, for lichen was growing amongst them. Rav Chitza noticed that the other, Rami, was not wearing tefillin and said to him, why do you not wear tefillin? He replied, I suffer from the bowels. And Rav Yudha said, one who suffers from the bowels is exempt from wearing tefillin. He further noticed that the other was not wearing tzitzit and said to him, why are you not wearing tzitzit?" He replied, the coat I'm wearing is borrowed. And Ravihuda Yehuda said, a borrowed coat is for the first 30 days exempt from tzitzit." While this was going on, a man was brought into the court for not honoring his father and mother. They bound him to have him flogged, whereupon Rami said to them, leave him alone for it has been taught every commandment which carries its reward by its side, does not fall within the jurisdiction of the court below. Said Rav Christus to him, I see that you are very sharp. He replied, if only you would come to Rav Yudah's school, I would show you how sharp I am. On a simple level, what we have here is a story that's placed within a larger or polemic between Surah and Pompadita. Um in various contexts we are told that the the sages of pumpadita excelled in the art of peel pool excelled in the art of deductive logic nimble thinking uh in Masecha baba messiah we are told that there was someone from well, there was someone and the question was was asked are you from pumpadita where they can make an elephant go through the eye of a needle showing that there w- they excelled in this ability to somehow make a case work for everything. Um, and on one level, what we have here is a story that is looking at Sura versus Pumpadita, different schools of logic. And we see that both because that is the frame that is given at the beginning and because when Rami himself is asked where he is from, he introduces him as himself as coming from the place of Ravyuda, of Rav and then it comes up several times uh, again throughout the story, and culminating in the end. If you only saw me in my original location, the school of Ravihuda and Pompadita, you would fully understand my particular way of thinking and approaching various issues. So that's one way of looking at the story. But here too, I wanna open up the general question, whether there are additional layers that are going on here. Okay, so what we have here is a story. Yes? In addition
2: to being treated as a stranger, um, Rami is acting as a stranger and he's doing everything he can to not be a part of the community. And he has a good reason for doing each one, but the in the end, he's, he's not, um, not a part of the community and he's kind of saying, you know, I'm better than you, I know better than you, from eating what they're not allowed to eat, to eating outside, to not putting on children's conceits, to um, telling them, oh, yeah, your, your decision over there is wrong. And, and this might be connected also to the fact that the person was brought in for uh, not honoring his mother and father, which is kind of like honoring the community. Well, don't worry.
1: So, we have from these two comments one, um, the first comment, uh, a comment that looks at Rami in a very sympathetic light. Here is a stranger, someone who has come, is eating what is discarded by everybody else, is eating it on the outskirts of town, is someone who suffers from stomach ailments, is someone who did not have enough money to own his own garment and therefore he's not wearing tzitzit a sympathetic reading of Rami and then the second comment was a critique of Rami that may accept that sympathetic reading that says he may be a stranger and he may be someone who is poor and downtrodden and sick and yet he has still held himself outside of the community and so what we hear are two different conflicting uh, points of view regarding where there is culpability. Does the culpability lie in the community or does the culpability lie in Rami? Any other readings here? Yes. Yeah.
3: hmm Yeah. I think there's also a tension between externals and internals, here, of what you see on first glance versus what you know, you look at this man and you don't expect him to be the tummy co that he is. And it's interesting that it's related to the like this the whole conversation um evolves from this question about the utter, which is something that if it were extern you know, there's a question of because it's part of the
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Anything else? I think I saw a hand there. Yeah.
5: Again, I'm, I'm thinking of the Yosef story, the first reference to Arabian people, and he's one of the first ones in the Jurassic literature, and how Yosef is the, the Na'ar, the Ebed, the Ivory, the mm-hmm. outsider, and how uh, he too is placed to be inside the home.
4: Or stubborn, or something like that. So it seems that whoever told this story was not taking Rami's point of view. They were trying to write up front.
1: Hmm. Okay. And how do you see that in the first story? How do you understand the final part in which someone is brought in uh, to be flogged for failing to honor their parents? And then you have the exchange between Rav Chista and Rami. We're looking at the last four or five lines. But he, accepts, but he accepts the rebuke only at the end. Suri is asking whether throughout the entire interchange whether he accepts Rami's reasoning. Yes.
5: In terms,
1: in terms of, in terms of, it, just a couple biographical details about Rav Chisda and also in terms of Rami, Rav, Rav Chizna, um certain very important details for this story. He himself is a rags to riches story, a self-made man. We are told that he would refrain from eating vegetables because that increases the appetite. We are also told that when he would walk in a thorny field, he would raise his pants saying, the scratches in my flesh will heal, the scratches in my garment will not. Um, He later became a brewer and with the money that he made he actually built the yeshiva in surah and then headed up the yeshiva in surah in terms of rami uh, depending upon you how you count he either appears only once or two other times in um, the gemara the one other time in which he appears he asks a question as to whether a torah that has above that is cut off whether that's considered a torah that is um, is Pasul or not? And the answer there is given if the child can read it and reads it as above, then it is not Pasul. But that's really the only other time that Rami appears. Ravchitta, however, is a very well known, highly respected individual. And above and beyond the Rags to Riches um, story, what we also know, we are told that he was the kind of person who always treated people with dignity he was one who would greet people first, even idol worshipers. He would never wait till other people would greet him. And so what you do have um, is for sure a disparity in terms of someone who is the respected and esteemed head of the community and someone who um, does appear in one other place but doesn't have the reputation of a rab The the concept of shematan um, scharan b'tzida, that the reward is by its side, refers to the fact that the commandment to respect one's parents specifically indicates what the reward will be: a long life, um, which is a rarity in the Torah. Um, and so there is a concept that those things are ultimately adjudicated. Uh, in the court on high um, that the court below is not obligated to adjudicate in those things. So that is what, what the reference is there. But you can read that and say that Rami is saying you who were unable to put together to connect the dots, to see the forest and not just the trees of my own situation in terms of being a poor outlier have no business adjudicating ethical matters that are part of the court. So that could be part of that. That is one reading, yes? Any other, yes, one last comment.
2: My previous comment, I just thought <laughs> but I realized that he is really correct in that a person who does not honor his mother's father should not be judged. community and let people who choose to not wear to because they personally <coughs> are not able to wear to let that be. Accept
1: that. Here too, we have a story that in isolation could be read in a variety of different ways. Um, some ways more sympathetic to Rami some ways more sympathetic to Rav Chissa. both ways I think leave us a little bit unsatisfied as to what exactly happened here and who exactly is in the right or in the wrong and what I'd like to do over the next 10 minutes or so is look at a variety of strands that some of you already touched upon that are similarities between these two stories in an attempt to glean some larger meaning Um, and i listed for myself at least six or seven but i have no doubt that there are more one that we heard already was the notion of something surrounding food and food being a centerpiece in the first story in masecha kiddushin we see it is happening around a table Perhaps the Sudamfseket table, where Rami asks for—excuse me—where where the Satan asks for food, and successively comes closer and closer in the house, first getting bread, then getting the cup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here in the story in Khulin, what we have is a situation that's surrounding around food, eating of the udder, roasting on the grape kernels. What does this mean, eating outside of the community? So that's, that's the first. The second is just on the very bare minimum level, the encounter between a local individual, a person who within their own world is a person of authority, Plimo in his household, um, and Rav Chista, in Surah, and the outlier, the poor. Above and beyond that, we have what was touched upon earlier, this confusing sense of internals and externals. What you see is not what is really beneath the surface. In the Kidushin story, we have Sin, or Satan, masked as a poor person. In the Chulin story, we have perhaps um, a poor person masked as misdoing or wrongdoing, but we have this sense that what we see is not what we get. That we are having an interaction with an individual, but it is not clear what exactly is happening there. In both situations, we have the local person of authority who is not doing something that is out and out wrong. In the story of Plimo it's very very difficult to make the case that he is doing something horrible he has opened up his home he has successfully brought this person in yes we could make the case as we have that perhaps he was being too reactive and not proactive perhaps he was being too arrogant and not understanding what the true nature of tzedakah or haknasat or chim is. Perhaps he was not taking a proactive stance, but it's very difficult to make a case that Plimo was engaged in out-and-out wrongdoing. The same for Rav Chista. Rav Chista is engaged in a very important act of reconciliation prior to Yom Kippur. He is judging acts um, of wrongdoing. He is engaged in some sort of give and take. It is hard to say that he is doing something out and out negative and yet there is some sort of question as to both of their behavior. On the flip side, when we look at the person who is the outlier, here too we're not sure whether we should have full sympathy or full antipathy. In the case of Satan, um, particularly because he is Satan, but the poor person disguised as Satan, we are told repeatedly that he is um, pushing the envelope. Here is the classic situation of give him an inch and he'll take a mile. No matter what, he asks for more and more and behaves in an increasingly extreme and repulsive situation. In the case of Rami in Masechet Chulin, what we see here is somebody who may be poor, may be an outlier in the community, and yet there's a sense that he's a smart aleck. He always has an answer. Uh, he perhaps, as some of the individuals here mentioned, has not made every effort possible to include himself in the community. And so we have this question regarding the poor person uh, in both situations as to whether their behavior was appropriate or not. In both situations we have rebuke going on um, and the question is whether this is appropriately times rebuke, whether this rebuke is uh, the right rebuke for the right situation. In the Plimo story in Masakhet Kidushin, what we have is Satan turning to Plimo and saying why have you always cursed me in this way. Um, And then Plimo turning to him and saying, how should I have cursed you? How should I have related to you, excuse me? And in the case of Masechet Chulin, what we have here is Rami looking at Rav Chista and saying to Rav Chista, you have no business judging this particular type of case. And in both situations, we have the, the bottom line as being the ultimate arbiter is Hakadosh Hu, is God. In the case of Mesechat Kidushin, Satan says at the end, You should not be saying an arrow in Satan's eye. It is God who rebukes Satan, based upon the verse in Zechariah Vigar Hashem Satan. The God is the one who rebukes And in the case of the story of Masechet Chulin, what Rami is saying is basically that in certain cases, it is not your jurisdiction to judge. It is God who is ultimately the judge. So from the encounter between a local person, a local person of authority in their own realm and the outlier, to the fact that it takes place over a meal, to the fact that we have some sort of charitable encounter that it is questionable regarding the behavior both of the beneficiary and also of the person who is giving um, or the local authority, some type of rebuke that is going on, and also ultimately that God is the one who is the arbiter and the judge in these matters. And when you look at these similarities, one of the themes that emerges very strongly in my mind is the theme of how difficult and complicated interpersonal relations and in particular charitable relations are. I think a lot of people often would like to think that good deeds go um, noticed, recognized, appreciated but in both these stories, what we see is that very often the beneficiaries um, or uh, of largest are people who are themselves troubled. Um, in the case of the poor person, or Satan disguised as the poor person, what we have here is Plimo, perhaps sitting at the Suudat Mufseket before Yom Kippur, and he lets this person in the door and gets deeper and deeper and deeper in the interaction with this individual. You have Rav Chista in Masechet Chulin who is engaged in the act of judgment prior to the day of judgment and gets involved in this long-winded discussion on an argument that seems to be irreconcilable, irreconcilable, that there's no way to emerge from that. And so what you have here in both situations is a very clear example of the complicated nature of interpersonal relationships and the complicated nature between those who are on the giving end and those who are on the receiving end. And the message that the deeper you get, the more involved and complicated it gets is what we see here. Um, and then, above and beyond that, there are two points. One is the God is the ultimate judge. And if we question how do we navigate a situation that is complicated, where we get deeper and deeper involved and it is more and more difficult to extricate ourselves or to know what is right or wrong in the particular situation, how do we know how to act? Um, And what we're told here is that within our realm, we need to be giving people the benefit of the doubt and go above and beyond the call of duty. And it is ultimately only God who knows what is going on, what is happening in terms of the internal and the external, what is happening in terms of the individual's righteousness or lack thereof and in particular when we put this in terms of a arab yom kippur context what we have here is an injunction to go above and beyond of duty in this window of opportunity on this day that we are told that if you feast on the ninth it's as if you fasted on the tenth that when we are opening up um, our homes and feasting on Erev Yom Kippur, that we have an injunction to go above and beyond the call of duty in terms of interpersonal relations during that window of opportunity. And that it is precisely in those situations when it is not clear-cut Precisely in those situations where we do not know whether the individual in front of us is someone who is righteous or blameworthy, where it is precisely in those situations where the people who are good of heart, the plimos and the ravchistas of the world, need to go beyond what might be normally expected on Yom Kippur and throughout the course of the year. Realizing that we do not have the full picture, that we do not know what is actually going on and what meets our eyes is not necessarily what is happening behind the picture. So on that note, I want to wish all of you a Gmar Chatima Tova and um, a wonderful year.